Professor Alan Taylor holds the Thomas Jefferson Memorial Foundation Chair in the Department of History at the University of Virginia. He's the author of many books, including American Colonies, The Settling of North America, The Civil War of 1812, American Citizens, British Subjects, Irish Rebels and Indian Allies, and William Cooper's Town, Power and Persuasion on the Frontier of the Early Republic, which won the Beaveridge, Bancroft, and Pulitzer Prizes. He's with us today to discuss his new book, The Internal Enemy, Slavery and War in Virginia, 1772 to 1832, which was a 2013 National Book Award finalist and received the 2014 Pulitzer Prize for History. It examines the evolution of slavery in Virginia from the 1770s to the 1830s and focuses on how the institution of slavery, enslaved people, and white Virginians were affected by the experience of the American Revolution and the War of 1812. Alan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be with you today. Uh, slavery is in all of your work um, and all of your previous scholarship. You know, it, it, it's never far away from anyone writing about um, the founding period and the years that followed. Um, but in books like Liberty Men and Great Proprietors or William Cooper's Town, you seem to be more focused on the North. Um, and in this book, you, you, you moved to Virginia. What led you to, to change that focus, if it is a change? Uh, well, I, it, it came about by a very northern route. I was doing research uh, for my Canadian book uh, in the archives of Nova Scotia, and I was surprised to discover the records of black refugees settled after the War of 1812. Now, I had known about the previous pulse of wartime refugees that had come out of the American Revolution and had gone to Nova Scotia. But I did not know that there was the second substantial pulse from the War of 1812. And I was surprised when I started reading around at what a low profile that story had in the historiography. And so I just uh, filed it away as a potential future project until 2010 when I was a visiting professor at the University of Richmond and that gave me an opportunity to poke around in the archives of Virginia in a major way and I discovered these phenomenal sources that enabled me to do this new book. Wow. You know what what the surprising thing or one of the surprising things about um the book is how important the war of 1812 is and and I think it's a war that often fades from the memory of, of most Americans. And, and I think it had a lower profile, in, even in the minds of American historians. It was seen as kind of a, an entree point to a kind of an era of good feelings or a kind of a, a last you know, aftershock of the American Revolution. But your book really sees it as a, as a central event. I mean, do you, do you think of it as a turning point in American slavery? Well, I think it's an accelerant is how I would put it. It accelerated certain trends that were already underway and trends such as uh, the South developing a greater consciousness, uh, the white South, I should say, uh, being a coherent region with interests that were at odds with the so-called free states. And I think uh, it uh, roused greater fears about the black population within, uh, that they were a potential danger if there was a combination with an external enemy. And Britain had been that external enemy in the Revolution and the War of 1812. Uh, after the resolution of the War of 1812, uh, thinking starts to evolve toward thinking of the North as a potential external enemy that in combination with the internal enemy of uh, enslaved people could be a grave threat to the Southern way of life. Wow. So, I, I mean, so much of the 
the, the book, what, or at least the things that grabbed me, some of them were how disruptive the arrival of the British is um, whenever they arrive. Why was it so disruptive to slavery? Well, you, you've got these warships showing up in, uh, in an area which is the, the Chesapeake Bay estuary, which is uh, this network of rivers uh, and the bay with tidewater people of Virginia and Maryland were very dependent upon for um, food resources such as crabs and oysters and fish, but also for transportation. And now you have the world's greatest naval power uh, able to dominate this uh, and also to obstruct the shipping, the export of the tobacco and the flour produced in Maryland and Virginia. And this is devastating to the local economy and very disruptive of transportation. And uh, all along these navigable rivers, you've got uh, thousands of enslaved people who would like to be free. So it is a nightmare scenario uh, for the planters of uh, along Chesapeake Bay. I mean, I guess one of the things is that these are, are the British warships are kind of like little islands of freedom, and they they kind of change the calculus. I mean, the calculus of slave resistance or slave you know runaway seem to be. You know, you've got to go a long way. You've got to make a long journey, and and with these these you know with the warships there, getting there suddenly changes the calculus of of escape and and slave resistance. Um, did the British come with the idea of liberating slaves? Um, well, no, and and it's, it's deeply ironic to think of warships as uh, islands of freedom, <laughs> in, in that uh, one of the prime causes of the war. Uh, was the British practice of stopping American merchant ships on the high seas or in ports, British ports, uh, to seize American sailors um, if uh, they seemed to be of British um, origin, although they're often making mistakes and grabbing people who are just clearly Americans and putting them into this enforced service and these crowded warships. So the warships uh, were places where a lot of people, a lot of white people, were there against their will. Sure. Uh, and we're doing their best to escape from them. So the deep irony is that the same warships, which uh, seem to be the centers of oppression uh, to many people, have another aspect to them, is that they are an opportunity for enslaved African Americans to escape to, and uh, in return for some service to the British, either as sailors or Marines or uh, workers in a naval dockyard or laundresses or nurses, that they could win their freedom. And so the same warships that, that, that seem to be oppressive on the, on the one side to some people are portals of freedom to other people. Was freeing slaves or some slaves part of the, the British war plan when they arrived? I mean, it seems to be a critical weakness in the South. Is, were they going to exploit that when they arrived? Well, yes and no. They thought of slavery as a weakness in the South, but they wanted to play a very subtle game that would limit their own commitments. So they do not come to start a slave revolt and they do not come to encourage thousands of enslaved people to escape to freedom. Their orders when they first arrive are simply try to scare the planters uh, into thinking that these would be possibilities in the hope that simply by showing the British flag in Chesapeake Bay and doing a little bit of raiding around that this is going to persuade the American leaders who were disproportionately from Virginia, including President Madison, would persuade those leaders to make peace 
rather than risk further disruption uh, to the slave system. Now, that doesn't happen. Uh, the Madison administration sticks to its guns, literally, and continues to invade British-held Canada. Uh, meanwhile, there are hundreds of African Americans who are trying to make the British into liberators by flocking to them in stolen canoes and boats. And this puts the British naval commanders on a spot. Are they going to turn these people away per their orders, which were to only welcome a handful of men who could be useful as guides and pilots, uh, not uh, hundreds of people, including uh, women and children? Would they honor those orders or would they violate them by taking in uh, these hundreds of people? which would strain the, the capacity of these warships to house them, to feed them, to clothe them, to provide them with water. Uh, it's a real test of the British will to obey those orders. And the naval commanders decide that they cannot turn them away, that they want to continue to have what could be considered the, um, the black card to be played in this war, and that if they turn them away, they'll alienate a population that was about half the population in uh, the Tidewater region, and that they would lose uh, a great deal of potential leverage. And so they persuade their government over the course of the year 1813 to change its policy and allow the naval commanders to, uh, to welcome and indeed to, to go out and seek enslaved people for liberation. Wow. So, I mean, there, one of the questions is that did the first group of slaves that came here, was this the, I mean, because the punishments for running away and trying to get to the British were so severe, was there a memory of the British from the revolution? Was there a sense that the British would be welcoming or were these, this first group just taking a chance and, and hoping that they could, they could convince the British? Did they, did they have a reason, did the slaves have, have a reason to think the British would be their liberators um, or were they just hoping? Well, they, they were both hoping and they had, a, had some reason. There certainly was a memory in slave quarters of the revolution uh, when the British had um, uh, assisted uh, several thousand um, Virginia and Maryland slaves to escape to freedom. It's a memory that there must have been a lot of pain involved with, too, because most of the American Revolution's black refugees succumbed to an epidemic of smallpox. Subsequent to the revolution, the British were staking out a position in the world as being the number one champions of suppressing the international slave trade. Now, that's not to say that they had uh, given up slavery entirely, uh, and indeed there were thousands of enslaved people held by British owners, uh, particularly in the West Indies. Right. Um, so the British are something of a mixed bag on that issue. But um, the, the enslaved people around the Chesapeake are drawing upon memories of um, a kind of legend that had circulated uh, in the 18th century, a wishful legend right. that the British king was a liberator uh, who wanted them to be free, uh, but that his wishes had been frustrated by the colonial leaders. And so that long tradition is something they're tapping into. It got a bit of a new lease on life during the revolution, and it gets another lease on life uh, because the white people all around them in the Chesapeake are, um, are stressing out about the British coming in and are uh, casting the British as people who are um, 
are a threat to slavery. And then enslaved people are very good listeners. And sure, they're, sure. they're picking up on this, that their, their masters and other white people around them are really agitated about the British coming into the Bay. And they're talking about uh, the British being a threat to slavery. And so the enslaved people are, are filing this away quietly and thinking, well, when I, if I get an opportunity, maybe I should try going off to one of those warships and seeing. Well, and not just that, but then when they get there, not just convincing the British to let them stay in some case, but to get the British to be an instrument of freeing like their own people, their own families. That, that was just fascinating. Right. Well, the, the, the great inhibitor to flight, there are a number of them. One is it is extremely dangerous. <laughs> and the penalties of being caught are extremely severe. But also, uh, enslaved people had developed extensive families and communities. And uh, if you can get out as an individual, that may be appealing, but if your wife or your children or your parents or your cousins are all left behind, you know, that's, that's a, a painful choice. And it's a choice that uh, many enslaved people could not bring themselves uh, to, to make the choice of running away as individuals. Now, if they were in a position where they could escape as family groups, or they could go to an, a military ally who could be persuaded to come back in armed force to your neighborhood uh, and to liberate great numbers of your family members. Now, that's a different proposition. And that's what the War of 1812 presented to enslaved people in the Tidewater region. The, the, the great majority of Virginia slaves lived more in the interior, in the Piedmont. And they are not in a position to escape. And I haven't found any Piedmont enslaved people who escaped to the British during the War of 1812. All of them come from the immediate vicinities of these waterways of the Tidewater where the British warships were operating. Now, do you think some of that is, and I thought this was really interesting, is that there's a sense that there's a nocturnal knowledge that the that to be able to escape, one of the things that allows these Chesapeake slaves to, to move so silently is that they really, they inhabited a world, a nighttime world that was separate from their masters. And, and that if you were in the Piedmont, you might know your own neighborhood, but not have any idea how to get, particularly how to secretly get all the way to the tidewater, get to the to the water, and that the people who who did escape, that they had a kind of a map of what the area was that became essential not only to their escape but to, to the British, right? I mean, they, they became that became one of the ways in which they helped um, the British Navy. Uh, absolutely, enslaved people are living under enormous duress, with, particularly during the day uh, when uh, they have to work extremely hard and are subject to. Uh, coercive punishment uh, if they don't. But at night, they're, they're not locked up, uh, in, with very few exceptions. Um, they're living in their own cottages, huts, in their own neighborhoods. Uh, and they are constructing broader neighborhoods by traveling between farms. Uh, the reality was that most husbands and wives, enslaved husbands and wives, had to live on separate farms. Slavery was a dispersed phenomena. Uh, there were very few uh, large plantations with concentrations of slave people. And consequently, for a husband to be with a wife or to be with their children or their parents, it means traveling. Uh, and if they're lucky, they're in the same walking distance. And so enslaved people spend a lot of the night moving around to uh, visit one another or to do some hunting 
particularly of, of smaller game. And so the enslaved people also have to know the byways, which will not be patrolled um, by um, the slave patrols, which were pretty uh, erratic in Virginia anyway. But it's just smarter to stay off the main roads when you're doing this moving around. And it meant that enslaved people become um, the, the great experts on uh, their vicinities and uh, on how to navigate around them at night. And this is invaluable knowledge to the British who would launch their raids at night uh, when uh, the militiamen and, and uh, planters are, are largely sleeping. Uh, and now they've got the, the experts of the tidewater on uh, where the streams are, where the paths are, where masters tend to hide their livestock, where they tend to hide their other valuables, where slave quarters are located so you can get in and liberate other people. And there's a this dramatic turnaround in the ability of the British to uh, inflict a much greater uh, devastation with their raiding in 1814 uh, after they have gained these hundreds of enslaved people to help them, formerly enslaved pe black people, and when compared to 1813 when they're basically operating blind once they get on shore. You know, one of the surprising things was not just that the freed slaves who, who freed themselves and then encouraged the British to come back and free others, um, that they served as, as pilots and guides, but they actually enlisted, that they're, they're in their colonial marines. Yes. Was that a difficult decision for the British? Was it a, a kind of a, a simple evolution, or, or, or did, was it was it fraught to aim, to arm American slaves and, and turn the former slaves and turn them into, um, you know, I, I guess re almost regular troops, if not regular troops? Well, they're, they're turned into regular troops. They're uh, colonial Marines. They're paid the same as as Royal Marines. Um, the British had set a precedent in the West Indies during the 1790s where they had uh, in, enlisted uh, several regiments of black troops in order to defend uh, their, the West Indies against the French during this massive war the British were involved with. So that set a precedent. So it wasn't difficult for the British once they'd made the critical decision, which was to encourage uh, escapes. Then the question becomes, well, we got to feed them then. Uh, we we got to figure out a way for them to be useful to us. Uh, so it's a pretty easy decision at that point that, well, if we are going to take them in as refugees, then the young men have to be encouraged to provide military service. And so they're given a choice. They're not forced into military service. But there's a whole lot of cajoling and persuading that goes along with this. A great number of them prefer not to go into military service and instead work in the naval dockyard at Bermuda, where they're paid. Uh, others uh, work uh, as sailors in the Royal Navy. But the, but the most significant cluster of them becomes uh, colonial marines. And the, this was a battalion that was very similar to uh, the black regiments of the Union Army in the later Civil War, in that the officers were white men. Uh, they were from Britain. But the uh, the privates and the NCOs, the corporals and the and the sergeants, uh, were uh, runaway former slaves. You know, one of the other the calculations. You know, if the calculation of escape changes because of the presence of the the naval warships, you know that you know escape it's hard and during peacetime and it's a long walk and you can't take family groups. It also seems like the the calculation of slave murder could be. Recalculated that there's if escape is easier, it seems like there's a it would be an open the doorway to to taking revenge as well or taking revenge and then escaping. 
Um, but there doesn't seem to be very much of that. Well, th- there is a desire to take revenge in the sense of um, targeting your former master's farm or plantation in order to plunder it uh, and, and to liberate uh, the slaves there. So there, there, there is an eagerness to do that. Uh, but what there is not is a is a desire to go and kill the master. Um, now they're not if they if they're in combat, uh, there are no compunctions against killing the master. But there there is there isn't the desire to go and and and, and kind of privately murder masters, which is um, a very rich uh, contradiction, because. Um, Virginians, when they would write about enslaved people as an aggregate, would call them the internal enemy, and they would work up this fantasy that that what black people were uh, doing uh, every day was plotting a way to rise up at midnight some night and murder men, women, and children in their beds. And there's virtually no evidence of this until 1831 when you have this one completely isolated event that we call Matt Turner's Rebellion, where this nightmare becomes true in one Virginia county. But this fantasy had long existed without any evidence. Uh, And indeed, uh, during the War of 1812, there's actually a decrease of violence, private violence, um, by enslaved people against white people. There were fewer killings. There were fewer episodes of arson. And in part, it's because slave people have this other option along Tidewater, which is simply to escape to the British and then return in uniforms as uh, as military personnel uh, in a more organized way to take what they really wanted, which was um, the freedom of their relatives and some plunder as compensation from their masters, former masters. Is there is there any evidence at all of, of colonial marines exacting reprisals or, or acting in a, I mean, do, is there any commentary of them being particularly brutal towards, um, white, you know, I mean, they, they, they're involved in, in military operations, but they don't seem to, uh, to, to ever, uh, not that I saw that they, they, they take extra reprisals. Do they? No, I mean, there's no example of them doing what you could imagine. We would imagine, this is our imagination, sure. that they would be tempted to just go in and, and kill a master. And they don't ever, there's no case of that. What we do have cases of is they go and they harangue the master, basically, mm-hmm. with, a, with a litany of all the misdeeds the master had done, and now you're going to suffer for this and the loss of your property. But this is also pretty characteristic of the entire uh, war in the Chesapeake. There's lots of examples of uh, what we would consider fairly wanton destruction of property, but there's no massacre of civilians which makes it very different from warfare in Europe at that time. Sure, sure. Uh, there's, there's no massacre of prisoners. As far as I can tell, there's only one civilian who is killed in a captured town uh, in all the Chesapeake, despite all the raiding that's going around. So it's a war in which people, are, when they're in combat, they're doing their best to kill one another. But when they're not in a combat situation, when they've occupied a village or a plantation or a farm, they're out to destroy property, but they're very uh, careful um, not to rape and not to murder. Yeah, so the, the sack of Washington, for example, does not look like 
um, when armies on the continent would take over a town. They're completely yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a nasty thing to have the public buildings burned. But there were, I think there were only two private homes that were burned uh, and uh, no civilians who were raped and, and, and no civilians who were murdered. Right, uh, which is remarkable. Sure, if, you know if the, you know the Spanish who were suffering all the uh, the agonies of a of a nearly total war at this time could compare their situation of what happens when the British come in and capture a city or when the French retake it. It's just it's it's a level of atrocity that was never achieved uh, along the Chesapeake during the War of 1812. Now, native peoples uh, along the frontier uh, they are suffering that kind of war during the War of 1812. Uh, what happened to you know the colonial marines and the slaves that are freed after the war? Well, the, the colonial marines and their families were resettled in Trinidad uh, in the West Indies. They're resettled as free people and they're given land, and uh, they uh, they experience some prosperity and their communities persist to this day. They're known as the Company Villages in Trinidad. And the descendants are um, a distinctive group among the, the very complex, um, multi-ethnic, multi-racial population of Trinidad. And they call themselves Americans. You drop the A and you turn the C into a K and you've got Americans. Hmm. Uh, and so uh, I've met a number of, of people who, consider, who are Americans and are the descendants of, uh, of colonial marines. Now, an even larger number of former Chesapeake slaves are settled in uh, New Brunswick and Nova Scotia in the Maritimes, uh, with Nova Scotia being the principal destination. And so there's a very large uh, Afro-Nova Scotian, uh, well, I should say a significant Afro-Nova Scotian population in and around Halifax especially, which traces their descent to um, to the War of 1812 refugees. One of the things that I thought was so striking in your book, and, and a, a documents like I've never seen before, are the, the letters that these people would write back to their masters. It was unbelievable. Um, I thought the one by Bartlett Shanklin was, I, I, I can't believe that this kind of document existed. Well, that was, that was my feeling. It was the first of the letters I discovered when I was going through the uh, records of this claims commission set up after the War of 1812 to compensate masters who could document that their slaves had gone to the British. And this turned out to be a, a gold mine of information. But I'd been working through several boxes of, of this uh, information before I came to Bartlett Shanklin's letter. And, uh, I, and initially, because it had no precedent, I'd not read anything like it before. I'm assuming when I start into it that it's a, a white man writing the letter. But it didn't make any sense as a white man writing this letter. And I'm trying to figure it out. And then I, when I read, I saw the signature, and it's in this big, bold hand, Bartlett Shanklin. The name was familiar. And I, I, in my computer, I checked uh, previous notes I'd taken from uh, other archives. And Bartlett Shanklin's name popped up as uh, an enslaved blacksmith who had escaped in October of 1814 from King George County, Virginia, and was considered the most valuable slave to have escaped in this particular escape. And now I have a letter from him. Wow. And, uh, and uh, his escape was one of the most sensational ones in that he was the apparent leader of um, a small group of young men who stole a canoe, paddled across the Potomac River, uh, somehow liberated a ferry boat and took it back to the Virginia shore and loaded up 17 people, uh, their relatives and friends, in order to escape to a British warship. 
And then now I'm discovering a letter written by him in 1820, uh, five and a half years later, in which he's a prospering blacksmith in Nova Scotia. And he's writing to his former master, Abraham B. Huey, uh, in order to set Huey straight. Uh, so it's it's a it's just a dream come true document, probably the best document I've found in my now long career as a historian. What and the and what he writes is so amazing that basically he writes, you know, you you took my money, I now have my money, and and what I found fascinating about the letter was he says I'm I'm as prosperous as you. Well, I'm 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 uh, doing as well as you, if yeah. not better. <laughs> uh, and and so it's it's interesting in many ways. It's a it's a reminder that uh, the African Americans of the Chesapeake uh, are people of third, fourth, fifth generations living in that region. Uh, so they're African Americans. They're not uh, fresh off the boat from Africa, and they have grown up in this culture that values money all around them, and they feel deeply frustrated, particularly. Uh, if they have a highly marketable skill like blacksmith, that they are denied the fruits of their labor. And Shanklin is an extremely proud man, and he's proud of his ability to make gold and silver as well as Hui, and that Hui uh, had exploited him by uh, taking all of the value of his labor uh, and denying um, Shanklin any, uh, any money and any satisfaction. I mean, there were two things that, that struck me uh, in addition to... to to what we're talking about. The first is that, that his revenge is that really living well is the best revenge that he doesn't, his dream of revenge is not to come back with a bloody knife and sneak into, you know, who he's uh, plantation and murder him. It's to tell okay. him that he's doing well economically in the market with his own skills. Um, right. Right. No, I mean, and that's, and that's, I think that's characteristic and, you know, it's so different from this, fantasy land of the internal enemy as being indiscriminate murderers. Right. And it's, it's in, in, in fact, that kind of fantasy has now been inverted in our own world in a movie like Django Unchained. Sure, sure. In which I, I was in an audience watching it, in which I think everybody was a white person, because I'm in Davis, California, and there are a whole lot of African Americans here. And, you know, they're, they're cheering it on. And it just struck me as that this is a, a very interesting turnabout, but it's the same kind of motif. And the projecting onto, uh, onto black people uh, a desire to kill, which uh, was not there except for in the structured way of military service, in which African Americans showed themselves to be uh, extremely uh, skilled um, Marines. And when they were allowed to serve on the U.S. Navy or in privateers for U.S. service, they also distinguished themselves there. But for white Virginians, everything's Haiti. Everything's Santo Domingo. Yeah, and, you know, there were some uh, Santo Domingos in the West Indies. It becomes Haiti, uh, and there's a slave, massive slave revolt there in the 1790s, which uh, did become this very uh, grim uh, civil war. Uh, in which thousands of people, white and black, um, and women and children, are massacred by everybody. And so this becomes uh, something that Virginians then project onto their own uh, slaves as uh, what will happen if they, ever, uh, if they ever let go of slavery and allow uh, former slaves to live in their midst, that it's going to turn into Saint-Domingue their particular vision of what San Domingue had been all about. Right. You know, but the, the last thing about Shanklin that I found fascinating was that, 
that even the reason that this document, which is so amazing, survives is that one last way that Huey can get money out of Shanklin is to turn right. this letter in and get paid by the government. That even right. it, the, uh, this document that is I'm making money, my own money, you're no longer making money off of me, is an object that becomes something that he makes money off of when he turns it in. Yeah, it becomes a commodity because who he needs to prove that his uh, the eleven slaves he lost during the war had gone to the British, and who he's I mean, excuse me, Shanklin's letter is Exhibit A for him. So there, it's rich in ironies. Is that yeah, he gets one more payday, a big payday, yeah. uh, two hundred and eighty dollars times eleven for this letter. But his decision to cash it in in this way preserved Shanklin's words. Right, right. And uh, I would not. There's, as far as I know, no other surviving letter by Bartlett Shanklin in the world. Uh, and, and we have perhaps, arguably, and the, the most important letter Shanklin would write in his life is saved by a man who had uh, exploited him for so many years and is exploiting him one last time by submitting this letter to a claims commission. Right. But it allows us, as you know, me as an author and, and others as readers now, to have access to Shanklin's perspective. And so I've talked about this particular letter a great deal with, with uh, groups where I've, I've been giving a lecture or people who've read the book. Nobody that I know of ever empathizes with Huey's. No, no, sure. But he identifies with Shanklin, no matter what the race is. It's remarkable how this letter has uh, taken on a, a different importance now that we know about it in our own society. Yeah, and, uh, and having read a lot of 19th century letters, um, his hand is beautiful. It's, it doesn't seem that, you know, that this was his one-off. I mean, he seems to be fairly familiar that, that, that he has in some ways that he writes back, he writes in this kind of like gorgeous handwriting that must show his master, you know, not only what he says, but how he says it is... Uh, is also one of those kind of reprisals against slavery itself. Right. And, you know, slavery is premised on, on the notion that black people are inferior. And there was an effort to minimize their education, to keep them uh, in as much ignorance as possible. But this is a period where those efforts were, were quite inefficient. It's only really after Nat Turner's uh, rebellion that Virginians will become much more systematic about um, preventing literacy among their slaves. And I would argue it's really in the generation that follows the revolution and, and uh, up to Nat Turner's revolt, this period from the 1780s until about 1830, is, I think, a peak period for literacy among enslaved people in Virginia and Maryland. So I'm not surprised to find uh, that Shanklin was literate. I'm very pleasantly surprised to find this particular letter survived. Sure. Uh, amazing. Uh, you, you know, your book, you know, goes through 1812 and then it continues, you know, for another 20 years. Um, how do you see the events of the war playing out in Virginia once the British leave? I mean, that, that kind of changing calculus goes away. But you know, if it is an accelerant, what does it accelerate and what, what do we see over the, the, the next 20 years? Well, um, up through the War of 1812, Virginia was the most powerful state in the nation. And the nation of that time was not yet the kind of centralized, powerful nation-state that we take for granted today, uh, which is largely a creation first of the Civil War and then of the World Wars and then the Cold War. Um, but the Ameri United States of 
circa 1812 is in many ways much more of a coalition of states. But Virginia has good reason to believe that as the most populous and the largest geographically of the states, it can really project its influence through the entire United States. And when you look at who the presidents were, there's pretty good evidence of that. Then along comes the War of 1812, and you've got a, you've got a Virginian as the president, James Madison. You have a Virginian who's the secretary of state, which was the number one, two position really in the country in the politics of that day, and that's James Monroe. They get locked into a policy of pursuing this war primarily by invading Canada. And Virginians are, are at the start okay with that. Uh, but then once these British warships show up in Chesapeake Bay and start enticing slaves to run away to them, and Virginians have to rely on their own militia, these amateur soldiers who would rather be on their farms and plantations. This is driving up the costs for the state of Virginia. It is uh, producing havoc in these neglected farms. And Virginians really want there to be U.S. troops taking on this assignment. But the United States wasn't able to raise enough soldiers during the war to both invade Canada and defend the coastline. And so the coastline suffers. And this puts a great strain on the relationship of Virginia with the United States. And Virginians start to, white Virginians start to ask themselves, what good is this union to us uh, if it can't do job number one, which is to defend us and our property? including our human property. Uh, so Virginians come out of the War of 1812 with a significantly reduced confidence in the national government. And then that is tested severely by Congress in 1819 to 1820 in a, a debate over whether to require the territory of Missouri to commit to abolishing slavery as a price of entering the Union as a new state. And this just drives Virginians crazy, uh, and uh, white Virginians. And uh, they are in the forefront of resisting this, even though the new president, James Monroe, is a Virginian. And at the end of the day, he's willing to sign off on a compromise that allows Missouri in as a slave state, but reserves most other uh, federally held territories to as free territory thereafter. And this is a compromise that's unacceptable to the great majority of white Virginians. It's a response that's, that's greater than the, the negative response in places that we expect to be more negative, like South Carolina. Sure, sure. So, so why is this? So my interpretation is that this is um, the Virginians are very committed to this concept called dispersion, which is they believe that their security from their internal enemy will come if they can sell their slaves off to points west and south. And uh, over a, a long period of time, this would generally reduce the number of slaves in Virginia. That's the concept. And they'll profit from it, and they think slaves will be better off from it. And the whole Missouri Compromise thing is a great threat to this dispersion idea, which I think uh, really uh, comes out of their experience in the War of 1812 of feeling this is what happens when we have a large concentration of enslaved people. We're at risk of this of this synergy between an internal enemy and an external enemy. And so, I mean, in some ways, this dispersion idea is almost like an, an internal colonization, right? That we can, That's right. we're going to reduce, that it, the idea of putting everyone on, you know, there's always, there's lots of talk about where we could send, where white Virginians could send African-Americans that always seem unworkable, these sea voyages. But 
we can, in a sense, send them to Alabama or in the dream at some point, Oregon, but that closes by 1820. Not that they know about Oregon yet, but I mean, this idea that, that this is going to be the safety valve and the safety valve getting cut off. Right. And it's an ideal one from their perspective because nobody gets taxed to do this. It's not going to cost governments any money. And indeed, even private individuals will profit. So it's entirely uh, driven by the market. And so this um, recommends itself as uh, the kind of solution that, that Virginians particularly like. Uh, whereas the alternative, the only other alternative that's floated out there is to gradually free blacks and at enormous cost then force them by shipment to go back to Africa, which would have been a nightmare for everybody concerned. And uh, it's a complete non-starter. Virginians didn't want to pay taxes. They had very low taxes, but they didn't want them to go any higher. And the notion that they're going to tax themselves to destroy a system that's profitable for them is uh, utterly implausible. So you have some um, very prominent men like Jefferson and Madison uh, and Monroe who who latch a hold of this African colonization idea despite its utter implausibility, which kind of shows their desperation rather than uh, any pragmatism. It, of course, never amounts to very much, but what does amount to far more is that the Virginians um, and Marylanders profit in a major way by selling their so-called surplus slaves away to the Deep South and to uh, Points West. And this does reduce the black population growth in the Chesapeake region. But it doesn't, in fact, reduce the overall numbers of slaves. So, so do you see a sense then in Virginia in 1820, in 1824, a growing sense that this isn't our country anymore? that the, the union is not our country anymore. Because, you know, as you said, like the for, four of the first five presidents are Virginians. And then after that, I guess you have Harrison, who was born in Virginia, and Tyler in 1840. But it doesn't feel like Virginia is what it was in the early republic. And, and sometimes I guess we just assume that, well, there's more states now. People are wider. Population is dispersed. But do you see there's a that Virginia is actually actively turning away, that they're seeing this external enemy, they can't control the game anymore, and they're withdrawing, or that they're trying to win the game and they just can't win it anymore? Well, I think that's the trend line. But I, I don't want to say, well, you know, once the War of 1812 is over, uh, the Civil War is inevitable. Oh, sure. Uh, what, what I would say is that Virginians become more ambivalent about the Union. There are ways in which the Union can be helpful to them, and when the Union is helpful to them, they think that's a very good thing. Uh, so they think it's very helpful that this Claims Commission is set up after the war to compensate them for slaves uh, that had run away during the war. They think it's uh, very helpful when the Union wages war on Mexico and uh, and conquers uh, territories that potentially could allow slavery to expand westward. But they're always fearful that uh, the growing population in the north, where the white population is growing faster than in the south, that that population is eventually going to gain control of the Union. And when they do, um, the southerners don't trust them to do what's necessary to protect the slave system. That won't come to fruition until 1861 with the inauguration of Abraham Lincoln, the first northern president committed to halting the expansion of slavery. He's not committed to abolishing slavery in the states, 
but he is committed to halting the expansion of slavery. And that's with the notion that if you halt slavery's expansion, uh, the system will eventually collapse. Now, that's the one thing that Southern whites agreed with Abraham Lincoln about. And that's why um, they were willing to secede from the Union. So I'm saying that uh, I'm not saying the War of 1812 is this dramatic watershed, but it is an accelerant which increases the ambivalence of Virginians and other Southerners about the Union. And and increases that tendency that the North will come to be seen as the external enemy. That's right. Um, and then an external enemy that, like the British, would primar- would have one of its primary, primary dangers as angering and unleashing the internal enemy, which is slavery. That's right. That's right. And so, the, the, uh, so I mean, this this idea of the internal enemy that's so is that um, is that a constant? Do you see it? I mean, are they are the slaves the the internal enemy already by 1770s? Does it accelerate um, post Haiti? Does it accelerate post 1812? Or is it a is it a, even by the 1770s? We're already in a sense that the internal enemy would be the slaves of Virginia. Well, it what. One other consequence of uh, coming out of the War of 1812 is that there, there is a, a concentrated attack in newspapers and pamphlets on slavery by certain Northerners who belong to the opposition political party, the Federalists, who are uh, attacking slavery vociferously to a far greater degree than ever before. And this, uh, this rouses a great deal of anxiety and anger among uh, white Southerners, and they, who had previously tended to be open about saying, well, the slaves are exploited, they are an internal enemy that would seek their freedom, um, but we just can't free them because they would be such a menace to us as free people, a greater menace as free blacks than as slaves. Now, it's a complete fantasy this, but it's devoutly held fantasy mm-hmm. from the South. Now they're being forced in this public discourse to stake out a somewhat different ground, and you see them starting to test out uh, this other line of argument, which is very different, which says slavery is a positive good. Slaves in, in Virginia or North Carolina or wherever are actually pretty content um, because they realize that they're taken care of as, when they're sick or they're old, uh, and they're really incapable of freedom. So uh, if you did uh, force them to become free, you would just uh, force them into lives of uh, shorter lives of misery. And uh, Southerners will increasingly embrace this new line of argument, the positive good argument, as they go forward in time in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s. So it will become the dominant motif. And so they can't even have the conversations they would have had in the early period of the 19th century in which, you know, Jefferson would concede, yeah, they're oppressed people, but what are we going to do about it? You can't even have that place to begin the discussion in the 1840s because that the, right. the Southerners are no longer conceding the basics of, of how we understand um, the problem. That's right. And so during the 1820s, it's, it's kind of the last gasp of this, what seems to be potential common ground in which you'd have people like Madison and Monroe and Bushrod Washington, all Southerners, uh, active 
in or supportive of the American Colonization Society, which is committed to the notion of trying to free slaves and send them off to Liberia. But by the end of the 1820s, most of the Southerners have withdrawn from the colonization society, and abolitionists in the North are attacking it as a fraud, so the thing collapses. And after that, there really is no middle ground on slavery. Northerners increasingly uh, accept that it's uh, it's, uh, uh, an evil system. That's not to say that they, they want to meddle in slavery in the states, but they are committed to the notion that the federal territories ought to be free territories, ought to become free states in the future, that their kind of social system of the North should become the norm in the country, and slavery should just be restricted to one corner of the country. And that's absolutely unacceptable to Southerners as they are latching a hold of this positive good argument. Alan, if we could, I'd like to take a one step back from the argument and ask you about, about the book more generally. I've been reading your books for, boy, 20 years now, and uh, you've written some, won awards and, and been a kind of staple of reading lists. Uh, and one of the things that has always come up, whether it's discussions in um, graduate school classrooms or reviews, wherever they appear, about your work is the phrase narrative history. Um, people usually use it as a compliment, and I, I think it's a compliment. Is that a label that you embrace uh, to describe your own work? Uh, well, I do, but with an asterisk. Um, I've, I'm quite committed to trying to make my work accessible to as many people as I can without selling out uh, I'm, as an academic. That involves techniques that we often call narrative, in which I'm trying to develop characters, and I'm attentive to plot, and I'm attentive to ironies. And um, so that that's all stuff that I will say, yes, that's that's what I do. Uh, That said, I was also trained in the new social history, and I have certainly benefited from uh, reading cultural history, and both of those have influenced uh, uh, many of my ideas. So, for example, in the the Wikipedia entry on me, which is, I I have to now uh, address it because frequently people will introduce me in public talks by quoting this line that says that I'm so committed to narrative history that I reject social history and reject cultural history, and that's, that's simply not true. It is true that I try to write in an accessible fashion, and um, therefore that's in the foreground rather than some sort of direct engagement with theory or method, which uh, other historians would do in social history and uh, cultural history. So it's a particular strategy for presentation that I've adopted, but in terms of the research I do or how I think about what are the problems here, uh, there's certainly no rejection of social history or of cultural history in that. I'm trying to produce uh, something that is a combination of cultural history, uh, social history, political history, and uh, in a narrative form, which will make it uh, accessible to students and, and to a broader readership. Well, I, I think you certainly have achieved that in this book. Uh, certainly, you know, that there's, there's data, there's human stories, um, and it's very accessible, very readable, and uh, congratulations on all of its success. Well, thank you, Stephen. That's very kind.